Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. the CEO and founder of The Mom Complex. She works with Fortune 500 companies, including Walmart, HGTV, Kraft, J&J, and many others to understand women and motherhood in the modern era. But it's her insights and research that have also given her significant insight into helping women to help themselves. Catherine is the mother of two children, She's also the author of a terrific new book called Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So That You Can Live the Life That You Want. You don't have to be a mom to appreciate Catherine's wisdom, but if you are, you will definitely appreciate what Catherine has to say. Catherine, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I am delighted to have you. Let's start with the mom complex, what that is and how you got started. So the mom complex is a consulting company and we work with mostly fortune 500 companies to help them develop better products, services, and experiences for mothers, whether those mothers are their employees or their customers. And we've been at it for a little over 10 years now. That's awesome. How did you get your start? Well, I grew up in marketing and advertising, spent 15 years in the advertising industry. And then as I was studying consumers who were mothers, it really opened my uh, eyes to how hard it is to be a woman and a mother. And so that kind of spawned the idea of the mom complex and a consultancy that could really help companies better understand our trials and tribulations so that they can be more helpful. Yeah. Now you, as I understand it, originally started the Mom Complex as part of an existing advertising firm, and this was essentially a research project that you undertook. Take me through how you and how and why you decided to break this off and turn it into your own entity and how how hard that was. Yeah, so you're exactly right. I ran the mom complex inside of an advertising agency for about three and a half years. And I decided to take it separately, mainly for work-life balance and existence. And the advertising industry is a very demanding industry and it's client service and it's always on and it's very hard to say no. And so I felt like I had a lot of value to add and a lot of companies that I could help, but I also wanted to go home and see my family and I didn't want to be you know on the road or on the clock all the time so now I'm so blessed to say that I don't work as hard but I have so much more of an impact on people's lives and and even the industry in in general yeah so when you set about to start this research talk about your own struggle I know this was a lot of this was an epiphany for you that you were struggling, maybe suffering, and you have a really interesting way of talking about struggling versus suffering, which I'd like for you to talk about. But but talk about your story, how your story played out as part of this. Yeah, absolutely. So I suffered from what I refer to as my dragon of self-doubt for 20 years, from age 15 to 35, 
where nothing I really did was good enough. And despite the external trappings of success, I was very hollow and very empty on the inside. And I continued to give all of my time away to other people and, and keep absolutely none of it for myself. And so by the time I reached 35, I was absolutely exhausted. I had two young kids at home and I had this professional opportunity to study mothers all around the world through my job. And it led to a personal epiphany that we're all struggling with self-doubt. And I think we should do more to talk about it and stop hiding it. Yeah. Talk about how different women are from men as a general rule. Obviously, your area of study is moms, mothers, and women, but you've seen some pretty clear differences in how we approach the world. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, most of my research centers on the human condition of self-doubt and not believing that we're good enough, smart enough, nice enough, tough enough. And women are more likely to suffer from self-doubt. One of the reasons is that we're just wired differently. And we're more likely to ruminate, to second guess, to worry that we haven't made the right decision, where men are wonderful at this. My husband's wonderful at, you know, he will make a decision, he moves on, he doesn't think about it twice. And like a week later, I'm still like, did I make the right decision? So we kind of wear ourselves down when it comes to negative self-talk, which not surprisingly is a big part of my research. What I find is that with men, the negative self-talk is critical, but with women, it tends to be cruel Mm. and it's cutthroat and it's you're fat and you're ugly and you're terrible and you're never going to be loved. Where for men, when I ask them to play back their negative self-talk, it's often like, do better next time, buddy. You know, it's it's critical, but it's not cruel. Where does this come from? I mean, we, we can't possibly be wired to be cruel to ourselves. So how do we get from the point where we're wired toward a tendency to actually treating ourselves really badly? Yeah, I, I definitely think we're more wired to, as women to pick up on the negativity and to have it stick a little bit more. Even I could even see that within my family. I had an older brother and and things would affect me and stick to me and hurt me more. So I do think some of it is biological. But at the same time, you know, no one can make you feel crap about yourself without your permission. So we are allowing it to happen. And while that can sound overwhelming for those of you listening, it hopefully it's empowering that if we're allowing this negative self-talk and to beat ourselves up, that we can unallow it. You know, we can we can stop it. Yeah. You talk about in the book the fact that early in your career, you were fueled by exceeding other people's expectations. <laughs> and when you hear that on its face, it doesn't sound so terrible. What's wrong with that? Why was it? Why was that a problem for you? And why do you think it's a problem for an awful lot of women? Well, I think there's a difference between setting high expectations and setting expectations that are too high. So I think it's critical to have high expectations. It would, it's what gets us out of bed. We can start careers. We can raise babies. But at the same time, if they're unrealistic and they're not achievable, it's technically the definition of human suffering. I mean, when you set expectations for your life that you are incapable of exceeding, then you fall short and you feel like crap every night. And so while you may think that your expectations are setting you up for success, if they're too high, they're actually setting you up for failure. And you never feel good enough about yourself because you're setting the bar to impossible standards but again the good news is we can change 
what we expect of ourselves. And I always expected perfection from myself. And when I fell short, you know, I would really berate myself and, and beat myself up. And but I'm, I'm living proof that dragons can be slayed. And, um, you know, I'm not a magician. Uh, I did the hard work and the homework, and I figured out how to stop doing that. Yeah. I know, too, you know, you talk about high ex- holding yourself to such high expectations. Perfection comes into that. That can also impact risk-taking and our comfort level with taking risks. Talk about your own story and how that impacted you or not in terms of taking risks and trying new things things like that well I think when you don't feel good enough about yourself on the inside you rely on the approval of those on the outside and the people around you and I think that's what can inhibit taking risk because if your self-esteem comes from other people and other people might think that's a bad decision And in my own personal journey, that was really a turning point for me. So when I wanted to get out of marketing and advertising and I wanted to be in control and I wanted to own my own company, there were a lot of people in my immediate circle that didn't think that was a good idea because Mm. I had a great job. I had health insurance. The company had been good to me. But I wanted to be free. And that was really the first time in my life that I said, it's okay that other people don't think this is a good idea or they're worried for me that it's going to fail. But I did it anyway. And that was a big moment of pride for me because normally the people that I would have relied on their approval, like it was my oxygen, I said, I'm going to do this anyway. And, um, of course, everybody now is really happy. And they're like, (laughs) good job. But it wasn't – it was only out of people's, I think, love and respect for me. They wanted to warn me of all of the downfalls of, you know, being an entrepreneur. But – I felt like it was a good move. Yeah. It's why you need a lot of different voices in your kitchen cabinet, right? Yeah. Sometimes the people who love you the most are most concerned about you having a failure or a setback even because they love you. They Absolutely. They don't want to you know, hurt yourself. Would you drill down a little bit more into where the confidence came from to take that risk anyway to sort of say to your family I know you love me and and thank you so much for your input but I know this is the right thing for me and I'm going to go do it so you have all this self-doubt you have all these things that you're struggling with but how did you muster up the confidence to know that this was the right move and to do it yeah I I guess from my perspective I don't even see it as confidence because that would be you know jumping to something so positive I think honestly I was trying to get away from something that was very negative interesting and it was a force in my life of that industry being all consuming it's no different from a lot of industries, but I didn't want to operate in that environment anymore. And I wanted to have control of my calendar. So I guess I was running from something that wasn't serving me as opposed to, so I guess in some ways I'd had to be successful because I wasn't <laughs> going to go back to, you know, working 80 hours a week and, and being so exhausted all the time. So, and then I guess, if there was courage, you know, involved, I had a, a business coach and an advisor who said, you can do this and I'll hold your hand and I'll show you. And it was an older man who is in his seventies and he started and sold several companies. And now he just wants to help younger people do it. And, you know, I'm a good student and I follow instructions and I do what, <laughs> you know, he says and what he taught me, so, t- taught me. So I think it was fulfilling for him too, but I definitely had him as the wind in my sails his name is John Kemper of 
I felt like I couldn't fail too fast. Yeah. Well, it's interesting that your, you know, that your sort of primary mentor and coach was a man Mm -hmm. and he was from a different generation. And oftentimes we hear when women are starting businesses, especially starting businesses that are themed or oriented around women's issues or things that women tend to struggle with or a need that women have that men don't, that sometimes it can be difficult for men to sort of fully appreciate that. It happens certainly in funding, but I'm curious as to how he was so evolved in his thinking. Yeah, well, I guess I would say that my reliance on John Kemper was more from just strictly setting up a business and running one and managing a P&L and getting a loan. And so I don't think he needed or required subject matter expertise. He believed in me. Uh And then he helped me set up the company. And so I think I could have been doing something completely different, like outside of, you know, a female forward or female focused company. And I would have benefited just as much from him. So I was really relying on him, relying on him for his business acumen and understanding the world of entrepreneurialism, which was very new to me. And I will say, though, that many of my mentors professionally have been men. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be the environment that I grew up in advertising. My boss was a man um, and and an amazing mentor. And, you know, talk about self-doubt. He used to come over to my desk when I was working so late. And he would say, Catherine, when are you going to stop trying to prove that you belong to be at this dance? (laughs) And I was like, wow. And so I think there is something in men, too, that they can see that self-doubt in us and recognize it and and bring it out in the open I'm not sure a woman you know would have said that to me so you know I think there's a lot we can learn from yeah interesting so you gave a TED talk in 2013 that really struck a chord and I think you could probably say was kind of your big break this is where things tended to crystallize Tell me about that, what, what, what you talked about, how, why that resonated, and then what happened after that. Yeah, so the TED Talk in 2013 was my coming out party, if you will, of me taking off my mask. And, and now, were you, just to sort of level set, where were you in the stage? Had you started, you sort of uh, spun off the mom complex at that point? Remind Not yet. So 2013, I spun it off in 2014. Okay, so 2013 year. was kind of a year that changed a lot. So I, had, I was on my self-help journey. I was going through therapy, watching lots of Oprah episodes, drinking you'd been lots doing, of red wine. <laughs> yeah, and you've been doing research at this point yes, for a so number of years. Yes, so I had collected a lot of data. I knew that personally that I was broken and needed some healing. And then I had done this research with mothers all around the world that said that they were also broken and needed healing. So for the first time, I really thought we were all one. And the reason I did the TED Talk was because the research that I'd done inspired me to start taking off my mask and saying I wasn't perfect, even that I wasn't happy. And that truth was rejected by a lot of people. I think that when you have the signs and the trappings of success around you, it's very hard for people to fathom that you wouldn't be happy. Because our society says, if you have the big job, you have a great husband, you have two kids, you know, then you have it all and you should be happy. So I started to let my truth kind of leak out. And it was offensive to me, to be honest, when I would say, well, I'm not happy. And people were like, well, what's it take to make you happy? I was almost shamed for it. And I thought, well, 
this is dumb. You know, this has got to end because I have some stuff I want to get off my chest. So that's why I did the TED Talk. And I shared the research proving, you know, from 17 countries around the world that we're all broken and that I too was broken. And I did it on that stage because it was the biggest stage that I could find that would allow me to rip off my mask and never put it on again. I mean, it was crazy. It's really crazy. That TED Talk has been downloaded 45,000 times, give yeah. or take. Yeah. And then I drank a lot of tequila after. <laughs> I was so stressed out. And it was um, a six-minute slot. So as you saw, I ended up doing it in spoken word poetry because I was only given six minutes. And I thought, I have so much to say. And what could a human communicate in six minutes? <laughs> so I found the TED Talks that I found most powerful. And those were some of them. So it was so much work. It was so time-consuming. And it was such a mental um, just release when I was. Yeah. Uh, you, you were sharing a vulnerability that you had not shared publicly in that way ever before. How did that feel? I mean, you mentioned the tequila, so I have a pretty good idea. (laughs) But I'd like for you to talk about how you felt about this because that sharing, that authentic sharing and that vulnerability is such an important theme that is very difficult for so many of us because we're conditioned to be all buttoned up and appear to have it all together. And and sometimes we do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But oftentimes we really don't. And it's just masking all of this other stuff. So talk about how you felt about expressing that vulnerability so publicly? I would say that um, the one word that comes to mind is free. I felt very free after. I felt lighter. I felt like I had taken off this backpack that I had been carrying around, you know, that had 10 or 15 unnecessary pounds in it. And, um, yeah, I just felt light and I felt free. And, honestly, I think that it's probably easier to stand on a stage and do it because I couldn't take it back and I couldn't change my mind. And I couldn't allow someone else's reaction to influence what I said, where I think it was actually harder taking off my mask, you know, one person at a time. And so then after I did the TED Talk, I started blogging about it. And that helped, too, because then it moved past my personal reasons for taking off my mask and i heard from women all around the world that it was helping them Mm -hmm. take off their mask and i was like wow the reaction was so positive yeah it was a ripple effect Mm -hmm. that other people said well if she can do it then why am i lying and saying everything's perfect and great so that that has been a gift that continues to give that it's no longer about me right the reaction was really fueling you and helping you recognize the impact yeah. that you could have. Yeah, and it's everywhere. And, and back to the difference between men and women, you know, when my husband read this book, which, as you know, is very vulnerable, he just he shut the book and he said, are you sure other women feel this way? <laughs> and I thought, oh, my gosh, like, yes. So that's always given me the confidence, I think, um, to sh- be vulnerable is because I know that it's inside of people. I know that they're struggling and suffering, too. And, um, and that's what makes it okay. Yeah. Okay, let's pivot and talk specifically about the book. Shockingly, it was not so easy to get this published. It's a terrific book, as I mentioned before, but you had to go through quite a bit of rejection in order to get to the point of actually getting it published. Talk about that experience. 
Yeah, to, so to sell a nonfiction title to a top 10 publisher, you sell it on a book proposal as opposed to writing the manuscript. So for fiction, you write the whole book. For nonfiction, you write the proposal. And the proposal for Slay Like a Mother was rejected for four years by 23 publishers. And my partner, Lauren, is here in the room. And just so many tears and you know sitting on trains hysterically crying at all the rejection and one time Lauren she called and she said she wasn't with me I called her crying and she said put your sunglasses on (laughs) because I was just it was like the ugly cry so she's always there for me when I need her but um, I felt out of control you know like you have to have an agent and they're selling it to the publishers and all they just come back is like more no's and more no's and um, but I knew it would see the light of day. I mean, I would have self-published if mm-hmm. if it didn't happen. So I knew that it would happen at some point. But just having the backing of a publisher just obviously helps so much. But I never gave up because I know how much pain there is in women all around the world. And yeah. so again about it you know not being about me I just thought well if I give up I've healed myself and that's beautiful and I feel whole for the first time in my life but if I give up then there's millions of people that I could help save and it felt selfish if I you know were to give up yeah it also seems like tell me if you agree with this but because you had spent so much time with women around the world talking to them one-on-one that you had created sort of a community of sorts and that you maybe felt some responsibility for representing their views and reflecting that yeah I did and you know and my normal I never thought I would be an author it was never a dream I had but I do speak at a lot of conferences and events so that's how I started giving back as I would go and I would tell my story I would tell the story of other women and just the tears and the heartache, and I even had one speech was sponsored by Kleenex because people would be crying <laughs> so much. And um, and so, yeah, it's like I couldn't leave those bleeding hearts on the floor in, in a sense. And I'm only one person, so if I just go talk to 100 people at a time, it's not going to have the ripple effect that I would like. And so a book felt like a way to reach a mass audience. Yeah. Because our audience is not just moms, we certainly have moms who are listening, but we have young women who are just launching careers, so women really at every stage. But for those who maybe have not reached the stage of motherhood, what's your advice, and and also frankly for mothers raising both daughters and sons, how can we get ahead of this sort of phenomenon to be so hard on ourselves, to talk to ourselves so critically and so cruelly. What can we do before we even get there? Yeah, I think it's important to note that self-doubt is born long before you become a mother. So um, in a recent research study we did, even after the book, we found that 75% of the time a woman's self-doubt is born during or before adolescence. Mm -hmm. So becoming a mother doesn't make you have self-doubt. You already had it from when you were a teenager or a young girl. And then when you, if you become a mother, it just gives you 150 new reasons to think you suck, you know. And so it just gives you more fuel to the fire. But 
You know, the first thing that you can do, regardless of your mother or not, is teach the mean voice in your head some manners. I'll, I'll give you an example from just last week because sometimes old habits die hard. So I was in Denver and I went to the hotel gym and I was riding the Peloton bike and I reached around and I was like stretching my back and at the top of my hips I felt all this cellulite of like the bike seat just like pushing my butt in all the wrong directions and immediately the voice in my head said oh my god I wonder what that looks like you know thinking of like the people behind me but right then I said no 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 no. what this looks like is that I'm working out and not in my bed like I want to be, you know, or, you know, whatever. And so I, I heard it, I caught it, and I corrected it. And so you're never going to get the mean voice to completely go away, but I'm really so much better at being like, whoa, 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 whoa. Here's what this looks like, lady. <laughs> and you're reframing it on the spot, Yes. basically. Yes. What are some other tips for getting that under control? So doing it right at the moment in which, you know, learning to recognize it, right? Yeah. Reframing it in that moment. What else can we do maybe more proactively before we have that experience right, of right. putting our hands yeah, on our hips yeah. and saying, what the hell is going on down there? <laughs> um, well, one thing that when we have a lot of self-doubt, it, it causes us to give all of our time away and save nothing for ourselves because subconsciously, if you don't have enough you time on your calendar, it means you believe that other people deserve your time more than you do. That's what you believe at its core. And so what I help teach women is is your calendar tomorrow is probably already a mess. There's no time for me time tomorrow. But six weeks from now, your calendar is not a mess. It's not completely full. There's probably some stuff on it, but it's not crazy. And so fast forward six weeks and start to put yourself on your calendar in reoccurring meetings. Maybe the first Wednesday of every month you want to do yoga. Maybe every Thursday you want to get in a 10-minute meditation. You know, maybe you want to drink wine with your girlfriends. It doesn't have to be healthy. But the important thing is you fast forward six weeks weeks and then you put it as reoccurring meetings so that every Tuesday you're committing to doing this and then when the future becomes the present and those six weeks pass you're already built into your calendar and I even color code all of those quote-unquote meetings in dark purple and it's my mojo color and so if there's not enough purple on my calendar in a given week it means I'm falling back into my old ways and so you have to love yourself and respect yourself in order to want to spend time with yourself. And so this is a really easy way to say no to other people, say yes to yourself, and then you have more mental capacity and you know energy to deal with this dragon. Yeah, it also probably has that subtle appeal for those of us who are box checkers to yes. some degree yes. <laughs> are fueled yes. by a checklist even though I know they're you know checklists are a blessing and a curse but for many of us especially women there's something that is empowering about checking things off the yes. list yes and I always think that you know I can teach you these little hacks and, and tricks and they really do work but at the end of the day you have to accept the fundamental belief that you don't have a hard time saying no to other people. You have a hard time saying yes to yourself. That's the difference. And now that I love myself from the inside out and I respect myself as a human being, then I don't have a hard time saying yes to myself because I think I deserve it. And I did not live that way for 20 years of my life. I had not a minute to myself. I gave it all away because I believed that I deserved none of it. Yeah. Talk about how your life has changed now that you know what you know, that you teach this, that you are much more self-aware of the destruction that you were doing to yourself 
What's life like now? I would say that um, that life now, there's still a lot of chaos around me. You know, life is challenging and it presents, you know, business challenges, personal challenges, family challenges, all that. Um, but the dealing with the chaos around me has become light years easier because I'm not also dealing with the chaos inside of me. And I think dealing with both for 20 years almost killed me. I mean, it was just too much. It's right. not sustainable. And so now I can take the blows and I can take the hits and the highs and lows you know, of life because I'm not attacking myself for having those problems in the first place or thinking that I should be better at them for some, you know, ridiculous reason. And so, you know, your problems are never really going to go away. I mean, again, we're not magicians, <laughs> but, um, you know, when you hate yourself less, they become easier to deal with. And I don't second guess my decisions and it's just a little easier. Yeah. What's your advice for knowing when to seek professional help? I love professional help. Um, I am a huge fan of therapy and mentioned several times since I like a mother, my own um, life coach, Devin Green. And I think it's one of the things like you're just going to know when you know, kind of like when you fall in love, it's hard to describe it. But when you're so broken that your whole life is being run by this dragon and you're exhausted and you're not sleeping and nothing you ever do is good enough, like then you're gonna need to seek professional help, I believe in some capacity. This work is so challenging and difficult. It's not gonna come just from reading one self-help book or listening to one podcast. Um, and you need some accountability. You have to say some of this stuff out loud. You know, I ask women all the time, what's the last terrible thing that you said to yourself? And it's really horrifying the way people answer that question. And um, on our website, so like a mother.com, we have a video where women are sharing the last terrible things that they said. And so if you're at that point when your negative self-talk is kind of ruling your life, I would say you need some, you know, some help. And, sure. you know, that can be in person. It can be on the phone. There's even apps now that are, you know, helping with therapy and making it more um, affordable. Mm -hmm. What role do you see hormones play? You know, we talk about this fall off in confidence and oftentimes this is, you know, puberty is when yeah. some of this is triggered. And then you see other changes that happen, certainly after you have a baby. A lot of us are much more vulnerable in part because of the hormones, in part because there's just so much new going on. And then later in life, when yeah. you go through menopause, there's yeah. another sort of set of hormones. How do you so how have you come to think about the role of hormones as it relates to all these topics? Yeah, I, I think it's just it's lighter fluid. You know, I mean, it's just right. there's already this fire, and I think that it's just fuel to that fire of making us second guess ourselves more than we ever have before. And I think it's a mixture of the hormonal imbalance that happens during those time periods, but also when things are so new to us. So when you first become a mother, everything is so new. When you have teenagers, mm -hmm. I mean, everything is so new. And actually, the highest rates of depression and anxiety in mothers is when they have teenagers. Interesting. And so, and you're exactly right with, you know, empty nesters and women going through menopause. So I think it's a combo 
Um, and, and it's, it's hard to deal with all the hormones, you know, it, in, in the, in the right way, but you can deal with everything being new. You can mm-hmm. take that on and at least recognize that you've never done what you're doing before. So if you're in one of these three, like major life stages, admitting that it's new and it's difficult, like I'm getting ready to enter the teenage years with my kids. I don't know what I'm doing and I'm okay admitting that I've never had a teenager before. I don't have the answers. I don't know how to do it. And having a two year old does not train you for having a teenager so that's how you can kind of take some control of that and then uh, personally I'm kind of excited about menopause because the women (laughs) who I interview that are on the other side of menopause they really care a lot less about what other people think of them and I think that's really beautiful they just the the veneer and the facade and the mask tend to naturally come off and I think that's I think that's great. Yeah. You referenced the dragon metaphor a couple of times. Why the dragon metaphor? Why why did that resonate with you? Why is that kind of the thematic in the book? Well, I think it's definitely this beast that's I wanted to personify self-doubt in a way that was very tangible and it felt very much like a beast and something that was controlling my life and something that was stronger than me and felt kind of hot and fiery and <laughs> Um, and so, so I liked that element of it, of, of being able to identify it and label it. And even for young girls, like you said, our daughters, it can give them a handle than the language to talk about it. But maybe even more so, I loved for the first time when we came up with that theme that it made my journey heroic instead of sad, because mm-hmm. there's a lot of sadness and pain in my own story and really beating myself up for so long unnecessarily. And when the theme came out of Slaying the Dragon, I thought that I I could be proud to tell that story and not embarrassed by it. And I think it makes other women feel courageous and strong. And my literary agent actually came up with that theme and it just changed everything. Yeah. Everything. It's beautiful. it. It really gives you a whole visual around this concept. You all, you talk about so many things in the book. One of the other topics is around comparing ourselves to others and this tendency toward doing that. Why do we do it and how can we avoid it? What are your suggestions and your advice? The main problem with comparing ourselves to other women is we're not <clears throat> comparing our full life to their full life. So you go over, you know, your friend Karen's house and she makes a mean meatloaf and immediately you're like, wow, I bet she feels no pain when she steps on Legos. She has, Legos, she has <laughs> sex with her husband every night. Her kids are obedient angels. I mean, we see one sliver of a woman's life and believe that she's perfect in every area so i think that's where it gets dangerous if you admire something about a girlfriend of yours like that's great you can try to adopt that habit or that behavior but when you make assumptions that other women are you know gliding through life on ice skates i just know for a fact that they're not and it's all that i study and so if comparing yourself makes you feel like crap about yourself you know, when it's not actually true, what you believe about others. So it's, it's, it's unnecessary. Yeah. I love what you wrote about choosing to lose certain battles. What did you mean by that? Yeah. So I always ask women, you know, I say, it's great to figure out what are three 
battles right now that you want to win in this season of your life. You know, maybe you got a new promotion and you really want to nail that. Or, you know, maybe it's a, a tough cancer diagnosis in your family and you really want to help out with that. But more importantly, figure out the three battles that you're willing to lose right now. And so I'll give you an example. I have two kids in two different schools. So my husband does more at my son's school. I do more at my daughter's school. So when I go into my son's school, I can be triggered. My dragon can be triggered of like, you don't know all the moms here. You're a loser. Everybody else is a good mom and you suck. And then, but in that environment, those thoughts do occur to me. And then I say, no, you know what? I decided to lose this. And these moms thinking that I'm a bad mom is not true. I'm a good mom in this environment. I'm not known to these people, but that doesn't mean I'm a bad mom. We have two healthy parents that are involved and engaged. And so you feel less like a loser when you decide to lose something, you know, or my daughter's swim meets. I will go to as many of them as I possibly can, but I don't volunteer time. I don't because I want to sit in the bleachers and relax. And that's me losing. Mm -hmm. And if you try to win at everything, you're just going to die trying. So be proud of the things that you're willing to lose. Yeah. You have studied this topic and worked on this for more than a decade. Have you seen any changes and any evolution in our thinking around this? And if not, how long do you think it's going to take? Or do you (laughs) think this is just something that we are wired to do and we always have to work on it? Well, I think the good news is that younger moms and millennial moms are the first generation of mothers to come out and say they're not perfect. So, you know, they're always putting stuff on Instagram of hashtag mom fail. And, you know, my mother's generation would never, I mean, the internet aside, would not be like, I'm failing at this. You know, that's not something that she would shout from the rooftop. So I do think there's hope in terms of women finally being honest and open and Um, I think therapy and getting, you know, mental health um, help and support is becoming more popular and less taboo. Mm -hmm. So I'm hopeful with those two things. Uh, But it's not something that a lot of people talk about. And I, I think more people, you know, need to have, you know, you can experience some of the pain that the bravery requires in this space. But once you say it out loud, you know, the world keeps spinning. Yeah. <laughs> it keeps going. People don't care about you as much as you think they care about well, you. Well, that's like, exactly right. Speak your truth and move on. <laughs> the final chapter in the book is about raising dragon slayers. Talk a little bit about your suggestions for teaching our children about the highs and lows and your advice in that regard. Yeah, so the the crazy thing about these dragons of self-doubt is that they thrive in silence and avoidance and denial. And they really can't live when you're aware of them and you're present and you're paying attention. And so what I always teach parents, mothers, fathers, um, is to every day talk to your children about their peak and their pit, the best part of their day and the worst part of the day. And I encourage you to share yours as well. And what that teaches young children is that every day has a part that sucks. Every day has a bad point, a low point, something that you wish that didn't happen. And also their mother has bad days and bad moments. And she's still alive and she's still talking about them and it's okay. And so we 
have to, with many of us having such strong perfectionist tendencies, you don't want to raise a child in an environment that says they can only talk about the good things and they can only talk about their success. And um, unfortunately, if you have your own dragon of self-doubt, you know, you're terrified of your own problems and you're just horrified of your children. <laughs> and so that's what does require working on yourself first and then the stronger you become at slaying a dragon, you can help your children. But start with the, the peaks and the pits. Yeah. Looking back over your body of work so far, what do you hope the impact will be or will have been? My only hope is that women encounter this work and this book and they become nicer to themselves. And I think when we tear ourselves down less, we then will tear other people down less. I mean, I think it has to start with us. And I think it's a profound ripple effect that if I can help instill happiness and peace of mind inside of some of the most important human beings on the planet, that that's probably a good day at the office. Yeah, yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, Catherine, we ask everyone who comes on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra. You've given us amazing advice already. You've put incredible advice in this book. But if you had to boil it down to just one thing that really is kind of your North Star, what would that be? I would say figure out what drains you and what excites you and spend more of the limited time that you have on earth doing the things that excite you. Catherine Winch, the book is Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So That You Can Live the Life You Want. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. To learn more about Catherine Wench, The Mom Complex, and her terrific book, Slay Like a Mother, check out the show notes. I will include links to all of those things, as well as a few photos from our visit today. And if you're enjoying She Said, She Said, please, please be sure to share it with your friends. And I'd also love your feedback. What do you like? What do you not like? What can we do better? It would really, really help us improve and I'd love to hear from you. As always, you'll find incredible, inspiring and impactful women like Catherine who are making the world better every single day. And as always, thank you so much for listening.